This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Success has many hands, ladies and gentlemen. Failure, of course, has only one. Last night, sleepy Joe Biden looked like someone had propped him up in front of the TV cameras and given him some kind of booster jab to make him look more alert than usual. Incredibly, the 46th President of the United States then hailed his Afghanistan adventure of recent days an extraordinary success. His words, cue incredulity all around the world as Afghan refugees arrive on the shores of dozens of countries all over the place uh, to make a new home because they don't want to live in Afghanistan anymore, thanks to the Taliban, thanks to ISIS-K, and thanks to the blundering of of Joe Biden, the worst president the world has ever seen. Today, we will take stock of just what that ridiculous description means, and in what world would anyone think what happened was somehow ordained, planned, or even orchestrated by Joe Biden? A man who literally couldn't tie his own shoelaces if he didn't have some help. Uh, We're kicking off this morning, though, with a different call to arms. Toby Young, editor of The Daily Skeptic and general secretary of the Free Speech Union, joins us as schools are reopening with new restrictions, more testing and dire warnings from the teachers that things can only get worse. He'll also address the insane vaccine passport plan, as he calls it, which Boris Johnson appears to be pressing ahead with. And he'll tell us why test and trace staff are being laid off. Because there's nothing for them to do, right? What on earth is going on? inside of Downing Street. Does anybody know? 0344 499 1000. Tonya Buxton joins us too with the latest from the Open for All campaign. News that more and more children are being given antidepressants and that, of course, there's a new variant in town. Just in time. Actually, uh, interestingly enough, though, all of that is against a vaccine uh, background, rather, of COVID cases. Uh, That would be positive tests, by the way. Actually falling for the seventh day in a row. You won't want to miss any of that. 0344 499 1000. And as Extinction Rebellion continued to disrupt business in London, wreaking havoc with people's day-to-day lives, we'll tell you about a new green plan to charge you for using the roads. Plus, we'll be asking why the parole board has seen fit to release double rapist and murderer Colin Pitchfork this week after he was sentenced to life in prison decades ago. As ever, of course, you need to hear from you as well. What are you hearing from your schools, from your employers? Uh, are you going to go back to the office anytime soon? You tell us and we'll tell everybody else. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So here we are. Let us take a little bit of stock, shall we, uh, of where uh, the world is. On the front page of the Times today, our country is liberated, but we are left with ruins. Taliban celebrate amid the wreckage of Kabul's airport after the last US soldier leaves Afghanistan. That's a report from Anthony Lloyd, who's on the ground still in Kabul. Basically, um, Afghanistan is completely and utterly ripped to sunder. Uh, the Taliban are currently in charge, but may not be in charge forever. Uh, there's going to be likely to be uh, a challenge to them from the Northern Alliance. ISIS-K is still messing around fighting as well. Uh, lots of people are being killed. The money situation is apparently dire, uh, albeit that China may come in and offer them a load of money for all sorts of things. At the moment, uh, there is literally no money in Afghanistan to do anything. Biden, on the front page of the Daily Telegraph, the US is no longer the world's policeman. Well, there's only one thing I could say about that, but I'm not going to say it because that wouldn't be right. Meanwhile, uh, we've got COVID cases on the wane. Meanwhile, uh, we've got vaccine passports on the horizon. Meanwhile, we've got schools reopening. uh, And I had an email yesterday from my son's school, secondary school, basically saying we will be resuming the testing programme. You will be expected to have a test on arrival during the first week of school. And then from then on until the end of September, you will be testing yourself twice a week. Well, thanks, but no thanks. Let's talk to Toby Young, General Secretary of the Free Speech Union. Toby, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I'm fascinated by all sorts of things this morning. Uh, Many of them have been uh, communicated by yourself. The test and trace business uh, seemingly going out of business because there's not many people left to test and trace. COVID cases down, a new variant on the horizon. Meanwhile, schools are going back. I can't help but think that there's something in the air that's being kind of uh, manipulated, if you know what I mean. I'm not sure that, I mean, to suggest that the data is being manipulated implies that there is some sort of controlling intelligence in the background, whereas I think it's just chaos and confusion, to be honest, Mike, as it has been for the past 18 months. Yes. Well, that's possible. But I mean, I do become slightly suspicious. And it's only because of the last 18 months that I am this suspicious that when you see cases going down shortly before schools reopen, would it not then be... uh, 
shall we say, charitable to assume that when schools go back, cases will go up. And then they'll go, oh, look, cases have gone up because everyone's gone back to school. Well, the, the story I read in The Times this morning said that because cases are now going down, the government are quietly optimistic that when schools reopen, um, they won't begin to climb again, as they did in Scotland mm. when schools reopened a few weeks ago. Um, but uh, my hope is that if cases do begin to rise in response to the reopening of schools and then students coming back to universities next month, uh, that uh, no more lockdowns will be imposed. Um, I hope, my sense is, that um, the lockdown fatigue, which the government was um, uh, fearful of last year, they, I think I think that the belief in the cabinet was that lockdown fatigue would kick in quite quickly. It didn't. Uh, but I think it is now beginning finally to kick in. And I think the public have, for the most part, moved on. You see this with the lack of mask wearing um, uh, when you go on the train, even on the London Underground. Um, a good 25 percent of people now aren't wearing masks. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, in supermarkets, particularly in less affluent parts of town, you know, in Notting Hill and Hampstead, um, uh, more or less everyone wears masks <laughs> in Waitrose. Yes. Uh, but uh, in Tesco's and Sainsbury's, in less affluent parts of the city, in less affluent parts of the country, uh, you see much less mask wearing in supermarkets. So I'm hope, I hope that um, we've moved on. Yes, well, I'd like to think so. But meanwhile, and I know this is a big bugbear of yours, vaccine passports haven't gone away. We're still supposedly going to be told by the end of September that they're going to be brought into various um, venues, various events that are held, despite the fact that we've been going to football matches for the best part of the last, you know, certainly month. I went to Lords to see the cricket. Nobody asked me for anything. You know, thousands of people grouped together. You know, why would they suddenly want to introduce this now? I agree. I, I've, been, I've been to every... Queen's Park Rangers game this season, including uh, the pre-season friendlies. Mm. Um, and uh, I haven't been wearing a mask. No one in the stadium has been wearing a mask. Um, and uh, as you just said, cases are going down. So the fear that once large sporting events resumed with no social distancing, there would be a surge in cases has not materialised. Um, uh, so I very much hope that vaccine passports will not be introduced mm. for uh, football matches or for any uh, large indoor or outdoor venues like yeah. nightclubs, um, etc. Um, it would be insane, I think, at this point to press ahead with the vaccine passport plan, even though uh, a government spokesman said that was the intention mm. uh, yesterday. Insane because we now know that uh, even being double jabbed doesn't stop you from becoming infected or infecting others. It reduces the risk of being of getting a severe bout of COVID-19 and ending up in hospital or dying. Um, but it doesn't seem to do a great deal. It marginally reduces the risk of you becoming infected and infecting others, but it doesn't make a significant uh, difference. Uh, so why they would still insist on people being double jabbed as a condition mm accessing you know football stadiums is just uh, it just beggars belief it's yeah. as though they can't adjust their policy in light of you know the emerging new evidence mm. about how ineffective the vaccines are when it comes to preventing infection well exactly right and one of the criticisms of the security at euro 2020 and particularly at the final uh, when all those people who were basically you know broke into the stadium was that the security guards were so obsessed with checking people's you know vaccination status they didn't really bother checking anything else that you would normally need to do at a secure sporting venue with you know tens of thousands of people attending it and so you know um it's a very impractical suggestion for one thing and and i thought also the last time we had a conversation about it in parliament it looked as though the government wouldn't be able to get it through anyway yeah well it it, it depends on um if a government really do press ahead with this, it may be that they're just bluffing because they want to incentivize people to get vaccinated. And they may have perfectly rational reasons for wanting to incentivize people to get vaccinated because we know that being vaccinated does reduce your risk of hospitalization or death. Mm. Uh, so it may just be a bluff. Uh, but if it isn't a bluff, um, uh, then um, it, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, the re I was at the Euro 2020 final, um, and uh, one of the reasons um, that did become 
a super spreader event is because of the chaos mm. outside the turnstiles, um, because um, people were checking people's COVID uh, status. Uh, and that meant lots of people were crammed together, all, all, all kind of mashed up. Um, uh, uh, so, of course, a, a degree of transmission occurred. Uh, and that's what happens when you when you create these checks. We see we saw that in Heathrow at the weekend when you insist uh, on people presenting evidence that they've been double jabbed or other forms of paperwork. It creates massive queues. There's a lot of overcrowding in enclosed spaces. And that creates a super spreader event. Uh, you'd be much better off just not having any kind of checks at all. Exactly right. And that's the thing. I mean, a lot of nightclub owners that I speak to, um, and Michael Gove notwithstanding with his trip to Aberdeen, uh, they also say it's a completely impractical thing to try and put in, put into place every single night, every single uh, seven days a week when the nightclubs are open. Yeah, it would be it would. I mean, and it would be um, such an unkind blow to inflict on an industry which is already on its knees. Uh, they need our support. Uh, not, uh, uh, not, not, not to have to impose restrictions, which will inevitably reduce their custom. Uh, you mentioned Michael Gove, Mike, and um, I was actually delighted uh, that Michael Gove um, uh, hit the dance floor uh, in Aberdeen on Saturday night yeah. and had a high old time, a night on the tiles. Uh, and the reason for that um, is, is, is either it signals that he's changed his mind on vaccine passports mm. because he didn't have to uh, produce any kind of COVID certification to go to a restaurant, a pub or a nightclub in Aberdeen. Uh, or if he hasn't changed his mind, it's going to make it harder, I think, for him to now insist on vaccine passports as a condition of entry mm. to bars, restaurants, pubs, nightclubs. Because after all, there is a surge in cases in Scotland. Um, uh, and if he now says, look, I'm perfectly happy uh, to go to all these places in Scotland without uh, having to show evidence of being double jabbed. But in England, we need to be much more cautious. That would imply that he cares more about protecting English lives than he does Scottish lives, which yes. would play very badly in the kind of revived debate about Scottish independence. So I think for political reasons, because he did have such a great time on Saturday night, it's going to make it's going to be much harder for him to now be the kind of uh, zealous advocate yes. of vaccine passports that he has been until now. But like all of these um, government ministers, and he's one of the more senior ones, you know, the hypocrisy is breathtaking. And it doesn't, they, didn't, they don't seem to care that they look like hypocrites. They don't seem to care uh, that their behaviour, uh, which they think should be different to everybody else, uh, makes a difference. But it does make a massive difference, doesn't it? Well, I'm going to give um, Michael Gove the benefit of the doubt. Um, and rather than think of him as a hypocrite, just welcome the fact that he appears to have changed his mind. <laughs> You're a very generous man, Toby. Vaccine passports are. <laughs> and I hope he doesn't produce any evidence that, in fact, he hasn't changed his mind. It was just being a hypocrite. Yes, absolutely. Stay with us for a moment, if you would. I want to talk about the test and trace system and, and, and why we need to start moving towards something else. Uh, Toby Young's talking to us. He is, of course, the General Secretary of the Free Speech Union, uh, also the editor of Lockdown Skeptics. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Toby Young, who is, of course, the General Secretary of the Free Speech Union. Toby, before we talk about the test and trace, uh, you'll have seen that uh, the breaking news this morning that Piers Morgan uh, has had his Ofcom complaint rejected, basically, the one that said that uh, he had upset uh, the... Uh, uh, the Duchess of Sussex. He said, I'm delighted Ofcom has endorsed my right to disbelieve the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's incendiary claims to Oprah Winfrey, many of which have been proven to be untrue. This is a resounding victory for free speech and a resounding defeat for Princess Pinocchio. Uh, do I get my job back? Well, that's uh, that's fantastic <laughs> news, Mike. Um, the Free Speech Union uh, wrote a very strong letter to Ofcom defending Piers Morgan and saying it would be absolutely ridiculous if he was censured in any way for expressing his robust views about um, that interview that uh, Harry and Meghan did with Oprah Winfrey. Um, I think Piers was ahead of the curve, quite frankly. Yeah. I think you know lots of people seemed momentarily taken in by them. But I think in the weeks that have passed since, um, their popularity has waned somewhat. Now, it would have been absolutely absurd if Ofcom had um, censured 
uh, Piers Morgan or um, Good Morning Britain in any way as a result of his remarks uh, on that programme. And I'm very glad that, um, that they haven't done so. And what I think is also good is that the news from the Ofcom um, sort of decision and from ITV as well, they say this. We also consider that the comments about race in the programme could have been potentially highly offensive, but that the comments were sufficiently contextualised. And I think that's really important because, you know, up until now, Toby, we've had this kind of onslaught uh, of ridiculous um, fascism for speech, whereby you're more or less told we can't talk about that. You can't mention that. Now this is telling you as long as you're in context, you can. Absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, the idea that anyone who criticises uh, Meghan Markle um, must be racist and that any criticism of her is a form of racism um, is just ridiculous. Mm. That, that, that seems to be the smokescreen she's tried to put up to deflect any criticism of her. Um, they even made that uh, she and her husband even made that criticism of the royal family in that interview. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's perfectly possible to criticise Meghan um, uh, because she's um, ghastly <laughs> in all sorts of ways right. um, uh, without being racist. Yeah. And the evidence that the British media's um, criticisms of her um, since she married Harry um, are um, evidence of the British media's systemic racism. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but the um, uh, the uh, the the um, general exec the, the chief executive of the Society of Editors had to resign. Yes, I do remember that. The interview. He challenged the idea yeah. um, that the British media was systemically racist, and that was why they'd been critical mm. of Meghan Markle. And just for just for challenging that idea and producing some counter evidence, he had to fall on his sword. Mm. Um, uh, no, I think we need to we need to we need to approach this with a bit more maturity. And when Meghan plays the race card, we need to see it for what it is, which is an attempt to deflect perfectly mm. legitimate criticisms of her. Yes, exactly. And for those of us who uh, rightly or wrongly make a living out of having an opinion, you know, you want to be able to express an opinion and give a view without being told by somebody you can't you can't have that opinion. You're not allowed to have that view. You can only have this view. Well, that's why. One of the reasons, Mike, I set up the Free Speech Union. Mm. Um, too many people are being penalised um, for expressing unfashionable views um, in the workplace, in universities, at schools. Um, uh, you know, they, they, they say something um, which other people disapprove of, uh, in some cases claim to be offended by, um, even though what they've said is perfectly lawful. And uh, complaints are made and they often end up getting into trouble, being kicked out of their university or even losing their job. In some cases, um, the police get involved. Someone complains to the police, yep. accuses someone of having committed a hate crime. Uh, the police duly investigate, conclude that no crime has been committed, but record the episode as a non-crime hate incident. Yes. Um, and if someone is then, some, if that person then applies for a job as a teacher or a carer and their employer has to do an enhanced DBS check, that shows up against their criminal record. The fact mm. that they have committed what the police themselves describe as a non-crime. It's like something out of 1984. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, you know, over over 100,000 of these non-crime incidents have been recorded against people's names since 2014 in England and Wales alone. It's, it's absolutely shocking. And one of the things the Free Speech Union is campaigning for is to scrap the recording of these non-crime hate incidents, which are having a very chilling effect mm. on free speech. I think. Yes. Well, it's a big day for free speech and a good day for free speech. So that's always encouraging. Let me finish up, Toby, just with that one thing I wanted to ask you about, the test and trace system, talking about 1984. You know, who knew uh, in those uh, those halcyon days of talking about Brexit endlessly that we'd be sitting here saying, my goodness me. So when the government um, agencies call you um, and they try and find out where you've been and what you're doing and whether you're going out anywhere, how come so many of them are now being laid off? I mean, who would have thought we'd even be having this conversation? I know it is astonishing. Um, uh, the, the fragility of our civil liberties, uh, which we've taken for granted now for too long, has really become apparent yeah. in the last 18 months. And one thing that shocked me is that the public aren't more outraged at these restrictions on their liberties. And it's because they've been terrified out of their wits by the daily bombardment of kind of fear porn from the government mm. and the mainstream media. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it's welcome news 
that uh, huge numbers of test and tracers uh, who were hired in the run up to Freedom Day because the government's advisers, i.e. Neil Ferguson, had predicted that uh, uh, cases would surge to over 100,000 a day and might even surge to 200,000 a day. And we needed to be prepared for this. Well, the government, on the basis of this poor advice, uh, hired um, uh, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of test and trace uh, operatives and have now having uh, are now having to lay them off because mm. um, uh, the ca- cases uh, did not surge uh, 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 in the wake of Freedom Day. On the contrary, they declined, giving the lie to the claim that uh, it's only these draconian restrictions that are preventing the virus from surging. Absolutely. Toby, great to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time. Toby Young, uh, the General Secretary of the Free Speech Union. Uh, on the news, apart from anything else, that uh, Ofcom have said Piers Morgan's comments on the Duchess of Sussex's interview with Oprah Winfrey were potentially harmful and offensive, but ruled that Good Morning Britain was not in breach of the broadcasting code. Hurrah! Uh, is a message for free speech out there for everybody. We can indeed say things that some people don't like. We can indeed have opinions that some people don't agree with. Well, that didn't ever come as a surprise to me because that is what we do here at Talk Radio. We tell you what we think. You tell us what you think. We all get along. The world turns and everyone is in a better place. It's that simple. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, we've got something far more pressing to talk about, and that is the impending release of double child murderer Colin Pitchfork. According to news that came out late last night, he is set to be released from prison this week. Now, you will remember that Alberto Costa, Conservative MP for South Leicestershire and Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Attorney General, was leading a campaign to try and reverse the parole board's decision to try and appeal against it to keep this dangerous monster back within the prison walls for the rest of his life. It seems as though Alberto's pleas have not been heard by the parole board and this bloke will be out in our community very soon. It's a shocking decision. Alberto joins us now. Alberto, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. And as ever, thank you for inviting me on to your excellent programme. Listen, I'm delighted to be able to speak to you, but I wish we were talking in slightly different terms. Um, You've been trying for weeks and weeks now to get the parole board to see sense. Why have they not seen sense? Well, look, it's an independent parole board. It's independent of government. It's independent of parliament. And it's right that it's independent. It's We have to have a proper parole system in our country and a supporter parole system. But, Mike, from time to time, the parole board makes awful decisions. Remember just three years ago, that terrible decision it made in the John Warboys case? Mm. That was another prolific sexual offender where the parole board chose to release him, notwithstanding the numerous victims uh, who had raised concerns. And as a result of that case, the then Secretary of State for Justice, David Gawke, introduced into Parliament what were known as reconsideration mechanism rules. They were introduced in July 2019. And what those uh, rules permitted is the Secretary of State for Justice to apply to the parole board for the parole board to reconsider a decision. And I was glad that the Secretary of State, Rob Buckland, listened to me, listened to my constituents, and did apply to the parole board for it to reconsider their decision. The decision was made by a judge appointed by the parole board panel itself, and the judge ruled that the decision to release Mr Pitchfork was not irrational. So I think we are where we are, Mike, and and what I would like to say to, to, to listeners is this, that I think the time has now come where we need to ask as a society, are there some crimes that you commit that are so beyond the pale, so barbaric, so repugnant, that is it ever right, should we ask the question, is it ever right to release somebody, even if they've been rehabilitated? Is it ever right to give them their freedom? And in my opinion, in my opinion, if you brutally rape and callously murder two innocent teenage girls. It's my opinion that if you're convicted of that, a life sentence should mean life. Alberto, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think any reasonable person, and that is generally how the law looks at stuff, isn't it? 
if it's a reasonable person's idea that that uh, that this is the case, or if it's a reasonable person's idea uh, that this person should be released, or if it's a reasonable person's idea that this person should not be released, that should be the measure, in my view, uh, of what the parole board does. And instead, I feel that the parole board is stock full. Uh, of people who want to think that everybody can be rehabilitated, who want to believe that, you know, the liberal ideal uh, is the way we should live. And that's all fine and dandy in theory, but it's not fine and dandy for the families of these two girls who were killed all those years ago um, in the 1980s. Apparently, he will be given an electronic tag. He will face restrictions on using the Internet. I don't even know what that means exactly. And he'll be banned from going near the relatives of his victims. I mean, Peggy's belief that that would even have to be a consideration. Well, I agree with you, Mike, and I would go further. As the Member of Parliament who's been campaigning for six years on this matter, when I was told in general what the licence conditions were, for example, I was told that there would be an exclusion zone hmm. uh, that Pitchfork couldn't breach. But when I've asked, what is that exclusion zone? Is it a mile within which he committed the crimes? Or is it 10 miles? Is it 50 miles? I've not been given any response. Uh, the parole board and the public sector organisations are refusing to disclose the specificities, the specifics of those licence conditions. I've, told, I've been told that they're very strict, that he'll be subject to GPS monitoring. But I've put a very simple question to these bodies, and I've said this. The M1 motorway goes through my constituency and runs along the village of Enderby, where he committed one of these crimes. And I posed a very simple question. Were he to break down? Is, firstly, is he allowed to go on the M1? Mm. Is he allowed to go through Leicestershire driving a car uh, adjacent to the village where he committed a crime? And I've simply not been given a response. So the opaqueness of the system is uh, is a real concern to me, and that's why... I continue to campaign in this matter, and I think my moving forward, what I want to do is see a full root and branch review of the parole board system. Mm. I want to see victims and victims' families have a greater say in the decision-making process on whether an individual who's committed these sorts of really heinous crimes, we're not talking about run-of-the-mill um, crimes, not even sort of general murders. We're talking about really barbaric crimes. Yeah. I do think that in our society, particularly given that we say that we treat sexual offenders against women more seriously, I do think that victims and victims' families, if people have been murdered, ought to have greater input in the process. It should be much mm. more transparent. And I'll be pushing the government to make the system more transparent in the root and branch review that the government has promised me and the House of Commons that it intends to have on the parole board system. Absolutely right. Because when you ask the question, Alberto, who does this benefit? It doesn't benefit anyone at all. It doesn't benefit society. It doesn't benefit the relatives of the victims. It doesn't benefit the, the, the memories of those two poor girls who were so brutally raped and then murdered and tortured. Um, in, in one case, I think, in front of Pitchfork's own child. I mean, absolutely horrendous a detail that I don't even want to talk about this time of the morning. The only person it seems to benefit is the killer. Now, why we want to give any benefit to him is, is a complete mystery to me. I couldn't agree more. As I say, I think there are some crimes, Mike, and I, and I hope your listeners would agree. I think there are some crimes, and I think Pitchfork is in that category. I cannot think of worse sexual offences against women than brutally raping and murdering them. That mm. There is no worse offence than that sexually that you can commit mm. against a woman. I, I do think that the time has come for us to say, if you commit these sorts of crimes, life must mean life. Now, if the guy had been in his mid-80s, dying of terminal cancer with only weeks to live, I think all of us, as a compassionate Christian country, we might just say, give him his last few weeks outside. I, I think I think we might just turn a Nelsonian blind eye at that point. But this man is only 61. He's a fit, middle-aged man with years, decades of life ahead of him. Mm. And I just cannot reconcile the fact that he's committed these crimes and he's been released. Yeah. I just think there's something not right. You're absolutely correct, and I couldn't agree with you more, and I hope uh, that we'll be talking more about this, Alberto. Let me ask you just one, one more story that's doing the rounds today, um, because I think there's a lot about our justice system that needs to be re-examined, for example. And I'm reading today that figures show that at the end of June, there were 10,882 foreign national offenders who have been released from jail but not deported, despite the fact 
that they could have been deported as their prison sentences were longer than 12 months. These are people uh, who are back out on our streets as well. And the fact that they're foreign is, is, is of limited appeal to me. It doesn't really matter. We've got plenty of homegrown criminals as well. But the fact is, they are foreign. They could be deported. Why are they not being? Well, that's a good point that you raise, Mike. And I think I wouldn't make a distinction as to whether they're foreign or homegrown. If you commit a crime, you commit a crime and you've got to serve your time. You've got to abide by the law. Most of us, most of your listeners are law-abiding citizens. Yeah. If you breach the law, and it's a serious breach in particular, then uh, you've got to uh, face justice for that. I think in this specific case, when it comes to foreign uh, individuals who have committed a crime, if they breached the conditions upon which they're entitled to remain in our country, and uh, breaking criminal law is certainly uh, one of those conditions, then the full force of the law isn't just to be applied, but it must be enforced. And it, it, it is an issue that from time to time constituents do email me on about. Mm. Why is it that we're not deporting people fast enough? I think that the Ministry of Justice and the Home Office, they're big departments. They do have the appropriate resources, but, and there is, there is we have to see this from another angle, which is this, that in order for us to enjoy freedoms, and earlier in your earlier um, part, you were talking about freedom of expression. Mm. We are a free country, Mike. And freedom means that we've got to ensure that the full course of the law runs. And whilst it's tempting to say you're a foreign criminal, stick you on a plane, deport you, there is a legal process that we need to go through. That legal process is there for a, for a reason. It's there ultimately to protect all our civil liberties, and I agree with that. But if you've breached the law, if you're a foreign criminal, and it's been ordered that you should be deported, then you should be deported. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and I think most people in this country would also say, you know, we have got plenty of homegrown criminals, but we don't need to import any either. But Alberto, thank you very much indeed uh, for your time. Alberto Costa, MP, Private Secretary to the Attorney General, also MP for South Leicestershire, where these terrible crimes by Colin Pitchport were committed. Uh, and from what it looks like uh, is exactly where they're going to re-release him back into the community. So he's going to go back to a place where he committed these crimes. He's going to be told not to use the internet in certain ways. He's going to be told not to go near the relatives of the victims. What the hell is going on, ladies and gentlemen, with the parole board? It's ludicrous, isn't it? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, which is, of course, not only the home of common sense, it is the home of free speech. So let's talk about free speech for a moment and let us talk about the decision that has just been made by Ofcom to clear Piers Morgan of any wrongdoing involved 
with his um, statement about Meghan Markle. You might remember what happened. It was some time ago when he was on Good Morning Britain and Piers Morgan, who is one of the greatest broadcasters, I think, that Britain has ever seen. And it happens to be a personal friend of mine, which should not in any way cloud my judgment on this because it doesn't. Because Piers and I have had plenty of rows about plenty of things. He was in this very studio last year uh, when he was promoting his book. And we had plenty of arguments about lots of things to do with COVID, with lockdown, with restrictions. But that is not the point. Piers Morgan effectively left Good Morning Britain. He walked out of the studio because Alex Beresford, a weatherman, had a go at him for having a go at Meghan Markle. What we now know about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry is that they gave an interview to Oprah Winfrey, which contained several falsehoods, all of which have now been proven to be falsehoods. Piers Morgan questioned the motivation of that interview. He questioned the claim that Meghan Markle made that she was suffering from mental health problems, right? He has now been cleared by Ofcom, which is the regulatory body which makes sure that all of us who are in broadcasting don't say things which are irresponsible, don't say things which are in any way to be misconstrued, and don't say things uh, which cannot be defended. Now, what Ofcom have said uh, is that basically Piers Morgan can be defended because everything that he said, while it could be considered to be in some way challenging, it was said in context. Piers Morgan says this, Ofcom's vindication of me is a resounding victory for freedom of speech and a resounding defeat for Princess Pinocchios, who think we should all be compelled to believe every fork-tongued word they say. Now, he says, do I get my GMB job back? Well, I tell you what, if I was a GMB, I'd be trying to get his job back, but I don't think he's going to go because he doesn't need it anymore. And Piers Morgan has been a champion for free speech all of his journalistic career. And therefore, uh, I salute Piers Morgan this morning. Uh, I'm asking him to come on this show because he has been on this show many times. We will try and get him on the show today. If he can't do it, uh, we will be having a celebratory drink at some point because freedom of speech is a very precious thing. It is not to be messed about with. And just because you don't like what I say doesn't mean I can't say it. It's as simple as that. Well done, Piers Morgan. I salute you. This is Talk Radio. Welcome back uh, to the rest of the show, because, of course, Raki Bassan is now here with us, and you're a champion of free speech as well. well I'd say so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- nice to see you, by the way. No, lovely to see I'm you, not Mike. Sure you, you, it's been a while, isn't it? It has. Have you even been in the studio yet? Is I this, don't think I have. I don't think no, you have. I'm, 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 I like the way it looks, definitely. Yeah, I think the last time you were in this building, we were downstairs on the 14th floor. I believe so, yeah. And now here we are. So, um, great news about Piers Morgan, obviously. Um mm. But you're here to talk about Afghanistan. Uh, you've been writing a lot about it lately. You've been writing an awful lot about the, the region mm. uh, of Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, all the other um, Tajikistan and other places sure. around there, how dangerous an area is. What's your kind of take on everything that's been going on? Well, I think at the moment, Mike, what the main issue is, is how should the UK approach the Taliban? Uh, we hear that there are people at the Home Office who are looking to prescribe the Taliban or they'd like to prescribe the Taliban as a terrorist Mm organisation. But then we see that the UK is actually in discussions with the Taliban right now in Doha. And there's that tension there. Do we prescribe the Taliban as a terrorist organisation or should there be a softening or rather almost a normalisation of uh, diplomatic relations with the Taliban? Because obviously we see that there's this uh, organisation, terrorist organisation called ISIS-K. Yeah where, in a sense, Western intelligence agencies and the Taliban, they almost have a shared objective in terms of destroying um, ISIS-K. So I think when you're looking at the Taliban, are they uh, an organisation we should be prescribing as a terrorist entity, Mm. or are they now a strategically important partner in in the region? Well, I think the trouble with all of that is that if you go and take a country by force, Mm. albeit that they didn't need much force because the Americans had already left and left them all the equipment behind, um, they still basically were not an elected government. They they chased away the elected government, who were very corrupt and who probably were not doing a great job anyway. But I think it's quite a dangerous policy, isn't it, to recognise that government if they've come in by force. Well, I think I, th- I think this is uh, this comes neatly onto my next point, Mike. There's obviously the risk that would be British jihadists would go and join the Taliban, mm. and ultimately, if there is that normalisation of diplomatic relations with the Taliban, then it, it weakens the UK government's hand in terms of instructing its citizens that it cannot join the right. Taliban. So you can see that it's a very difficult balancing act that we have here. Well, we've heard in the past, haven't we, that some people have gone off and done that. And in Mm. fact, I was told, I think it was back end of last week, that quite a lot of the members of the Taliban who are currently in Kabul are not Mm. actually from Afghanistan. 
they're from other surrounding countries like Pakistan mm. or possibly even Iran. Well, I think this is the interesting thing with ISIS-K, um, who have claimed responsibility for those devastating attacks outside Kabul mm. airport on August the 26th. Yeah. So this is a, uh, it's essentially made out of former members of the Afghan Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, and the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. And apparently they're attracting Islamists from countries uh, in, the, in Southeast Asia, such as Malaysia. Mm. So you can see here that the UK government is thinking, in one sense, it is important to, well, rather that it's desirable to prescribe the Afghan Taliban as a terrorist organization mm. because they don't want um, British, would be British jihadists to join the Taliban and then potentially return to the UK right. to carry out terrorist attacks if they were to participate in um, Taliban led training exercises in Afghanistan. But then they look at ISIS K. Which, it, which is a more violent, yeah. a more extremist uh, organization than the Taliban. The Taliban, Afghan Taliban is ultimately concentrated on um, implementing Sharia-inspired governance in yes. Afghanistan. Well, ISIS-K, they're ultimately focused on playing their part in creating a global caliphate. Yes. So you're saying the Taliban are less likely to cause the rest of the world trouble, albeit that they will be pretty awful to their own citizens. Well, I, I think that, that that is certainly a possibility. And I think that is the, that those, the, that's the kind of thinking that's going on within the UK government at the moment. Mm. No fans of the Taliban, but it could be the lesser of two evils when you bring ISIS-K into the mix. Yes. So does it make sense then, in your view, for uh, people from this government to be talking to them in Doha, uh, with a view to protecting the people who are left there, because that's basically what it's about, isn't it? Uh, and once that job is done, and whoever needs to come out still does come out, do we just leave them to it? Do we just abandon them to their own devices? Well, there's there's no harm in having these diplomatic talks. But one thing I'd have to say is that the Biden administration has really cocked up here. This mm. has been very much a foreign policy disaster. Yeah. Not so much the decision to withdraw, but the manner of the withdrawal incredibly reckless and incompetent. He thinks it was a great success. Well, he, he thinks not a quite lot of sure. things, Mike, if I'm being completely I mean, honest. I'm not quite sure where he's I getting mean, if that he thinks I mean, if he thinks it's a success, I really don't want to know what his interpretation of what a failure yeah. would be, yeah. uh, to be honest. But the, the reality of the matter is that many people looked at Biden, well, back in the U, uh, last US presidential election, as the competent candidate. Mm. Steady hands. Yeah. And that's been that's been, shattered, been proven to, to be everything but that really, hasn't he? No, absolutely. Quite, quite extraordinary because not only have, have they reinstated the problem that was existing before mm. Donald Trump with Iran, not only have they destabilized the Israeli um, Lebanon situation because of the fact that, uh, you know, they haven't supported Israel in the way that, that, that Trump did. They've also allowed the Taliban to basically march into Kabul and take over the country thereby creating the worst terror threat for the, for the rest of the world since probably 9-11. Mm. Um, I don't know what he's done that's been any good, foreign policy-wise. I, I mean, I think in terms of withdrawal, it's just remarkable that there were citizens that were stranded, um, American citizens. And then on top of that, ultimately, they with post-2001 uh, Afghanistan, the Taliban was very much seen as, oh, you know, this is an enemy mm. that we've got rid of. And then ultimately, the US military personnel were relying on the Taliban to provide them with a ring of security. So you can just see that just yeah. quite a remarkable yeah, it was pretty, transformation. Yeah, it was pretty ironic, wasn't it, when they had a spokesman for the Taliban decrying mm. the terrorist atrocity that took place at Kabul airport. And you're going, hang on a minute. Mm. Um, you were not that long ago committing terrorist atrocities. Now you don't like one that's been committed against mm. you. Because actually, probably more uh, members of the Taliban were killed than American Marines. Mm. And I think that just shows the volatile and unpredictable environment um, in Afghanistan. Mm. And I think that that, that that is the issue for Western intelligence agencies in particular, Mike. If their ultimate enemy is ISIS-K, then there is a possibility that they may see the Afghan Taliban as a strategically important partner. Mm. But then we also um, see people at the Home Office who would like to prescribe the Tal Afghan Taliban because they're worried about uh, British citizens joining up with the Taliban, participating in um, future, well, p the possibility of there being terrorist training exercises under the Taliban. And if they were to come to the UK, they would represent a significant social risk. Mm. So what's your view then of the numbers of people that, that Britain is importing, if you like, the refugees who have come from Afghanistan? Mm. Uh, we don't know exactly how many. We assume it's minimum five, possibly 10,000 mm. first up, and then it could become 20. I mean, the Americans did evacuate an awful lot of people. 55,000 mm. uh, was what Joe Biden said. But he also said last night that terrorism has metastasized, seems to be his favourite word, um, that it's now all over the world. It's no longer just in, in Afghanistan. It's mm. also in uh, in Africa with Al-Shabaab. You know, sure, it's yeah. in different parts of Western Europe. Um, 
I suppose the question a lot of people have put to me, who are listeners and, and, and viewers of this show, uh, is how do we know that some of the people coming here do not have, you know, terrorist sympathies? Well, I think that when we've uh, looked at uh, refugee policy in the past, I do think that the UK's altruism and benevolent nature, it has been exploited mm. to an extent. Uh, I've done research on foreign national Islamists who have been convicted of terror-related offences. Yeah. A notable chunk um, have a refugee-slash-asylum background. Right. I think w the one thing that I'd say about this resettlement scheme at least it's phased. So I think in the initial phase, there'll be 5,000 Afghan refugees mm. and that'll increase to a total of 20,000. And during that time, it'll be reviewed. We'll see what, what's potentially going wrong yeah. uh, within the scheme. But it, we have to be very clear here that with freedom comes responsibility. We have to issue a firm um, message to newcomers that while we welcome you to Britain, that you also have a responsibility to play your part yeah. in integrating yourself, whether right. that's economically, educationally, culturally and politically. Mm. And we have to be robust and we have to be very firm in our view that there has to be a strong pro-integration element to that. There's almost been a misplaced idealism, Mike, that if people come from these exceptionally harsh and traumatic environments, that they will absorb themselves seamlessly mm. into British liberal democratic structures. But that's exactly the kind of complacent thinking that undermines mm. public trust in the asylum system. Well, it's interesting because some people make the argument that, you know, we've got no business going to these countries mm. to nation build because they don't wish to live under Absolutely. our Western democratic system. They might just prefer Sharia system. Yeah, governance. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yet at the same time, those same people say, oh, but don't worry because we can bring some people here mm. who don't want you in their own country but want to come to your country. What proof is there then that they will assimilate? Mm. And I think this is the key thing with the resettlement scheme. Mm. I think that I think in terms of 20,000, I like the fact that it's faced at least. Yeah. And I think that the, the, a number of the refugees are interpreters who assisted the British armed forces. Yes. While and they we definitely owe them a, 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 and, a, a, and we a debt, do. don't we? And I think that they, I would like to think that under the resettlement scheme that, that um, historically persecuted minorities, so people who have suffered, um, historic, or rather members of groups that have historically suffered as a result of Islamist-led persecution, mm. I would like to think that they're prioritised. So that would include uh, Shia Hazaras, for example. And believe me, the Sunni extremists, they don't even see Shia Hazaras as fellow Muslims, fellow co-religionists. So I think that if we have a very robust approach, and I think that when it comes to refugees, they need support. I think that's the reality of it. There mm. needs to be a strong mental health infrastructure. There needs to be a very... Um, you know, regular reviews in terms of social and economic integration, that in the past, I don't think those kind of systems existed. So we really need to learn from mistakes that have been made previously. And I hope that is informing the nature and the structure of this resettlement scheme yeah. in, res in regards to Afghan refugees. Well, let's hope it does. The final point for me would be mm. that, of course, in the background, if there weren't any other people coming here illegally, that would be one thing. But since mm. they're all arriving here illegally, many of them from Afghanistan, mm. on the shores of the southeast of England, you know, people are a little bit less tolerant, perhaps, than they would have otherwise been. Mm. But Dr. Akiba San, thank you very much indeed. Research fellow, Henry me, Jackson Society, author, journalist, prodigious, prodigious writer. He's, he never stops writing. I don't know how you <laughs> found the time to come in. But good to see you. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, before we talk to Clive Driscoll, who is, as I say, former Detective Chief Inspector for the Metropolitan Police, let's have a listen. And if you're watching on TV, a look at Stephen. When my son was murdered, the police thought just another black boy stabbed. Just left there, gathering dust. Not right, is it? You're telling me that there's nothing you can do, and I don't accept that. Seriously, hasn't this case been investigated to death? Witnesses say Stephen was set upon by five or six men. But is this real? Does the brass actually want us to solve this murder? The Metropolitan Police have ceased to amaze me. I told them to send you everything. Well, they didn't. There's a brief attack. Who said it was brief? Go. His name's Stephen Lawrence. I mean, what makes him so special, eh? We found Stephen's blood. We were on Gary Dobson's jacket. Hope to execute the arrests within a week. We've waited a long time for this. Stephen starts Monday the 30th of August on ITV and ITV Hub. 
Now, there's not many things that I could recommend that you watch, but this looks tremendous. It's a three-part series. It's on every night, uh, Mondays uh, at 9pm on ITV. It's also available on ITV's Hub as well, where you could watch it all at the same time if that's what you wish to do. But let's talk now to Clive Driscoll, uh, former Detective Chief Inspector for the Metropolitan Police, because he's got quite a story. Clive, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, sir. I watched the show last night because I thought I needed to see... Um, how you were being portrayed by Steve Coogan. And, 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 I'll, and I'll say straight up, there's not a lot of people in the press and in the media who are big fans of Steve Coogan, but he he, he plays you, I think, with a remarkable deal of uh, what it seems to me to be sincerity. Um, I liked you as you were portrayed by Steve Coogan. Is he, is he, has he got you pretty good? Well I, well, I actually think he has. I mean, I spoke to Mr Coogan for about three and a half hours. I'm absolutely stunned, really. I mean, he, he's better looking. He plays the piano better than me and he sings better than me. So there's a lot to not like about him. But, yeah, no, I'd have to say that I was... I was. I feel very humbled by it all, really. But, but someone like Mr Coogan who could, you know, take in that part, I do feel quite privileged, really. Yes, and it is a remarkable story because it was really a kind of accident where you went into an old disused police station in Deptford, discovered a massive amount of files, all of which related, or many of which related to the Stephen Lawrence case, which had been terribly badly mishandled, buried due to, a, I suppose, a mixture of incompetence and downright corruption. Um, what was it that made you decide that you had to do something? You, you know, I, I remember just walking round, and uh, and it was like, as I said before, like the Mary C.S. Really, you knew somebody had been there, but everybody had gone. And just thinking that this is a case that's been a stain on the Metropolitan Police Service. It's been a stain on society, really. So I felt somebody should do something about it. And and so when I asked Commander Dick, she was a commander then. Um, you know, I just felt that it it couldn't be left where it was. And I, I wanted to, I always had incredible confidence in the team I had, which was just outstanding, beyond brilliant, really. And so I felt we could actually at least give it a go. And it seems, and as I say, I haven't watched the other two. It finishes at the end of the first series, uh, first show rather, uh, with that f- front page of the Daily Mail, who appear to have had something leaked to them about your evidence, your new forensic evidence. And I don't think I'm giving too much away. Most people know the story that you did discover a forensic link uh, to Stephen Lawrence and, and his murderers. Yeah, I think um, Angela Gallup and her team up in LGC Forensics near Oxford, they'd found it, and then we. You know, I mean, it is quite, I mean, the first, the end of the first series is is, is very correct. They're having told Baroness Lawrence that they could trust us, that within the following day there was a, it, I thought it was a police briefing, actually. Mm. It was quite accurate, the bit in the mail. And so, you know, I could understand how that would have rattled the family and, and, and the witnesses as well, because there was this uh, lack of confidence in the Met. And here, here we were again. Somebody must have leaked it, even though I don't think we... I'm very confident it wasn't anyone on my team, but somebody must have leaked it, and I don't think we ever got to the bottom of that. Well, do you know, I've got a theory, and some people have got a theory about that, um, but it was more a connection to the Daily Mail than it was to actually anything to do with the police. But perhaps we should leave that there. Yeah. Well, but, you know, I mean... I. I don't know, so I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to sort of listen to all theories because I generally don't know who leaked it. And if whoever it is who leaked it, I hope you're proud of yourself mm. because you could have, you could have snooked the entire investigation. Well, exactly right. I mean, one of the things that was um, very important in your investigation, but also in in, in previous um, kind of coverage, I suppose, of of the whole murder and and what went wrong, was the Daily Mail's um, adherence to an absolute kind of campaign to bring these people to justice. Oh, no, I've, I've always maintained the Daily Mail. I don't personally agree with trials in the paper because I don't. I, I believe I believe in our system. I believe in the jury system. I believe in our, our legal system. But you have to give them credit. And I know sometimes people are worried about that. And but I don't. You know, I think um, Mr. Wright is an incredibly. He's a very talented uh, journalist. Mm. Uh, you have to give them credit because they, you know, you know they really were possibly the start of what ended up as the criminal justice act of 2003 which people call double jeopardy so mm. as soon as i convicted somebody with it i'd have to be thankful and i've, I've said publicly i'm grateful for everyone's help and the press were good great to me I, I have to say i'm very grateful to the help i received yes and one of the lines in the first episode is that the, the belief certainly was that one of the senior officers who was investigating the case was basically getting paid off 
by one of the members of the family of one of the accused. Um, how did that end up? Because it's not clear whether that person was ever kind of disciplined for that or it was ever investigated. I think it was investigated, and I think that um, I think it was the Irish national. Well, not the Irish. The, the Irish part of the National Crime Agency mm. have looked into that at depth. I, I think um, I, I don't think there's. Uh, I think from the family's point of view, and I always go to the family for. I think they will never, never accept that there wasn't corruption because of the way things were happening. But if you're going to be on reasonable doubt, no, I don't think anyone's been convicted of it. No. Yes. And you've described um, Doreen Lawrence and, and her former husband as two of the greatest people, the nicest people you, you've ever met. But your relationship at the start with her, certainly, um, was not exactly what you might call smooth, was it? Oh, no, and I, and I understand that totally, because, I mean, she'd been let down and she felt angry. She felt the police were working against her. And so why why would she just, I, I, I strolled in off the street. Why, why would she why would she think I was any different? And I think what we did as a team, we, we changed the mentality that we, we desperately wanted the family to feel part of what we were doing and part of our investigation so that they could, if they wanted to. What I actually said to Baroness Lawrence and Dr... Dr. Lawrence was, you can come and see me anytime you like. Don't tell me because I'll probably tie me a desk up and I'd find anything then. Mm. So the answer being is, I'd, I'd just pop in, come in and see me, come and see for yourself. And I never did actually, but I'd, I'd love to have seen them. And I'm so grateful for the help and support they gave me. Mm. And when you took over uh, the investigation and you said to the surrounding sort of team members, if any of you don't want to do this, leave now, there's a scene where somebody comes into your room and says, this is not for me, this is not about police work, this is about something else. What was that about? Because, again, that was kind of not quite explained, and, and I was expecting you to say something to him as he left the room, because the inference I, was that he was sort of maybe somebody from the old school who didn't think this was right. Uh, well, I think that, you, you you know, within the police service, there was a lot of people who didn't think there was a lot much point reinvestigating what gone before and so some people and also you know if you look there was a lot of police officers that were, were quite severely criticized by the mcpherson inquiry and so i think some people just didn't want it yeah it was more than one actually it was a couple but uh, but i actually always said that you know be honest with me if you don't want to be on what i thought was a privilege and still think it was a privilege to be on then you know go and and pursue your careers elsewhere which they did and mm. And in a way, I'm very grateful that they were honest and said, not for me, because the people who stayed were nothing short of wonderful, really. Yes. And you've described in an interview I was reading the other day about uh, how you were in St Martin's in the field uh, when you were uh, basically told that you had this forensic connection and that there was now a breakthrough in the case. And you were sitting there near Gordon Brown and near Cresta Dick and also near the Lawrence, Stephen Lawrence's parents. Um, and you leaned over to Cresta Dick and told her this. Um, and her reaction wasn't perhaps what you expected. I know she said, gosh, yeah. you know, I mean, so I, I tell you what it was, it was actually outside. You, you, there, you can find this if you look hard enough on, on the internet, yeah. but uh, Baroness Lawrence was having a picture taken with all the dignitaries. And that's when Peter Birdsell phoned me and said, I had to speak to Mr. Jarman, wonderful scientist. And that's when he told me, and I was looking down the aisle actually at Stevie, um, as young Stephen, um, yeah, that was that pivotal moment. Yeah, I did, though. I did lean and, and whisper in her ear because at the time we were trying to make sure that the evidence we had was as good as we believed it was. And that, that set us on a, on, a, on a real, and I can't praise the team enough, making sure that the continuity and the integrity of the evidence could be trusted, which it was at the end, mm. which is fantastic. And did you have any worries at the time that you would be sort of ostracised in some way or that people who didn't want you to discover certain things that had gone before would try and prevent you from doing that? Uh, no, I, I suppose that's part and parcel, isn't it? It, it? Nobody nobody said I had to be a police officer. Nobody said I had to be a senior investigating officer. It was a privilege. So, And I, and I always felt that the team were strong enough to take that. And I used to think my job was to protect the team from that, really. So, yeah, there were moments when I wondered why certain people were behaving in a way, but... But I always felt that this was a very just thing to do and a very honourable thing mm. to do. And the bloody least we could do it, won't we, be honest, Yeah, right. To uh, for the family, really. Of course. And I get the impression that your relationship with Crested Dick wasn't brilliant. Um, and more or less, you were kind of asked to leave, weren't you, at the end of all this? 
Uh, compulsory retirement. They, they they actually didn't do anything wrong. If you look at the regist, you know, regulations, they could have asked me to stay if they wanted, but but they decided they didn't. I mean, I would say my relationship with Cressa Dick was very professional, really. Um, and she, you know, at the very early early moments of the investigation, I'm very grateful to her help. I think towards the end, um, I don't know. Towards the end, I think they'd had enough and. And, you know, quite frankly, there was three or four on my team. It was fairly easy to just say, well, you're past your sell-by date, on you go. And that's mm. what they did. Yeah, and so that was the end of the whole unit, really, wasn't it? No, the unit stayed. I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, the, the graveyard's full of people that are irreplaceable, isn't it? So I think <laughs> one, of, one, of the, one of the things I think I feel sad about is that if you went from 1993 to 2000, and six, we probably did investigate this in a particular way, which, which didn't prove to be successful. And then after 2014, when quite a lot of the team went, I think we drifted back to the previous way, mm. which, you know, if you speak, the, the judgment, you know, I, I always felt that as police officers, we can say what we like, really, but it's people will judge you by what you do. And if you speak to Dr. Neville Lawrence now, and, and if you speak to Baroness Lawrence, you speak to Mr. Brooks, Dwayne Brooks, that they feel as they did in 93, 4, 5 and 6 and and that, that I'm very sad about yeah. and some witnesses I think do as well which, yeah, because, I, which I am sad about Yeah because we have now got um, a Metropolitan Police um, service rather than force which which is quite often criticised, I, I have great sympathy for police officers, individual people in, in, the, in the business of policing because it's a very difficult job now that they've got because they're not really sure what they're meant to be doing and I think part of the problem with that uh, is their management and the fact that people like Cressida Dick and maybe Sadiq Khan as well um, are making their lives quite tough. I speak to, to police officers who do this job because it's really the police constable, sergeants and inspectors do this job. And I think we have a massive, massive obligation to be supportive to them at the moment because you're right, their jobs are hard. And, and you know, certainly sometimes it's made harder by distant decisions and, and especially seeing as the Met in particular have got about 5,000 new coppers mm. and, and I think I honestly believe as the public we've got to be patient and but, but also really encourage them because they've got some cracking people and I work with two Ray Sokolongo and Sam Bashir they help me with my kicks thing stop people carrying knives they really do believe in community policing even though Ray's a DS now um, but I I well, I'm still proud to be a cop. I was a police officer, proud to be a Met officer. But I think we need to support the police as much as we can now because I think it's going to be a difficult period. Yes. For and the next and, year, and, really. And, and given that Stephen Lawrence was attacked and stabbed, you know, uh, it's kind of ironic in a way that the number of stabbings now in London seems to have gone up by, a, you know, a factor of quite a large number because uh, that seems to, it's almost like an epidemic now, isn't it? I think it's heartbreaking, really, that, that, that the amount of young people that, are, you know, their lives are blighted. You know, we, we, we usually talk about that the people that have lost their lives, but there's people that have had life-changing injuries, isn't there, with stab wounds. So everything we can do, um, Axis Foundation have been so fantastic to me by helping me with uh, things I do in Brixton. I just think that, that we've got to keep going and, and not give in, because at the end of the day, young people are our future, aren't they? Well, you'd like to think so, and you'd like to think that they would have something more to live for um, than the next night's knife fight. Yeah, and that's why I think we need to work really hard and make sure that we we can show them that they've got a future, and make sure that that you know that we support them and give them the opportunities. I'm I'm not clever enough to run a country, but I think one of the things I would do if I was was make sure that the young folk of our country see a future in it. You're probably clever enough to run the Met, though, Clive. Um, what would you do if you did? Oh, to be honest, I don't think I am. Um, <laughs> I think I, 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 it's a I, political I, job I, now, isn't it? That's the problem. I actually, I actually think that. I think that you know, it would be fantastic if, if maybe a police officer could remain a police officer at the top. Because I believe in community policing. I believe if you haven't got the community on your side, how hard is it? Mm. How hard is it to be a copper? But I mean, the answer is I would probably be putting a massive focus. On the community, but I'm sure there'll be people sitting in power now saying, "Well, budgets and and, and I don't know the complexity of of the pressure from above." But I do wish them well. I don't, you know, 
I want the police to be successful and I want them to be fair and I want everybody to feel that the police are, are there for them. Mm. And it, well, it's a fantastic story, Clive. It's, it's, it's proof positive that if you are determined to get something done, you can get it done, regardless of what's gone before, regardless of the, the slings and arrows, regardless of whatever obstacles are put in your way. You were determined to find somebody for that murder and you did. Yeah, and I, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm going to sound like a recording record here, but the team were fantastic, and uh, so was the Crown Prosecution Service, mm. the, the scientists. Do you know, it was actually, when we all pull together, we can have a great time and we can actually win. You know, we can give justice, partial as it may be. Yeah, it was a success story, I think, and uh, I was so proud to be part of it, really. And what about the uh, assailants, those who were found guilty eventually? Did you ever get any grief from them? No, and they haven't shown an ounce of remorse um, at all. Uh, no, and, and, you know, I'd like to think that the other assailants that are still out there will keep looking because, who knows, let's hope that this programme will produce some new leads. Let's hope that... Um, and, and I will say that for every family that has lost someone through murder, you know, if anyone's got any information at all, put it in there because the least we can do, that we can't bring the people back, but the least we can do is try and give them some kind of justice. Yeah. Clive Driscoll, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Former Detective Chief Inspector for the Metropolitan Police, very much a part uh, of Stephen, uh, the new drama series out on ITV. Uh, the first episode was Monday of this week. Next one is next Monday. It is on the ITV hub as well, though. But it's a very, very, very good, well-put-together drama uh, starring Steve Coogan um, as... Clive Driscoll um, and it really is worth a watch and uh, quite a remarkable story uh, quite a remarkable man I think you might agree Talk Radio across the UK online on DAB and on your smart speaker The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio If you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say Mid-morning with Mike Graham Talk Radio Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad High quality fashion without the price tag Say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.